You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Yes. How many churches are in Rapid City? Anyone want to take a guess how many churches are in Rapid City? Somebody, some of you guys know this because I've talked about it. Who said somebody said 150? Okay. I was going to guess 209. 209. Oh, that was a very specific guess. Yeah, this uh, this seems an awful lot like uh, this is all of a sudden like Wheel of Fortune. You know, not on Wheel of Fortune. Uh, Price is right, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Two million because anywhere where there's two Christians, you have. <laughs> Oh, so your math, both your math doesn't work out, and that was really cheesy. So yeah, that's not going to work out really well. Uh, anybody else? Anybody got a stab? Go for it, Stephen. About 175. Okay, so that's really close. Okay, so and and I, I actually don't really know the answer, but here's why I know that it's really close to that. And you're like, why are you asking the question if you don't know the answer? Um, so seven years ago when we got here, they give you these little packets of information, these little demographic packets on the city when you're getting ready to to consider whether or not to, to go to that particular city. And so I had this demographic packet, and I'm looking at it, going, okay, how many churches are there? What's this look like? 173 churches seven years ago. 173 three churches seven years ago. It's got to be up to 209 now, so thank you, Jesse. (laughs) I'm sure you're right. You win. um, You get to take your dish home with you. Okay. Uh, Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's close to 200 churches in Rapid City. Rapid City's not that big of a place. Um, My guess is, what was the statistic they said? How many doors would you have to knock on in America? Six doors before you get to somebody who knows how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. My guess in Rapid City is that's probably down to about four. To be my, because that's actually what the statistics work out to. If it's about 200 churches, about four people, you should be able to knock on their door and at least have some sort of information about Jesus. Now, my question to you is this: What do you think happens when the church becomes that common? It's common ground church. <laughs> See the connection. What do you think happens when the church becomes that common? Um, oftentimes, I think when something becomes common, like what what can you do if if you don't like this style of church? What can you do? Church shop. Anybody been church shopping before? How agonizing is church shopping? Josh, why are you waving your hand in the air? You're so excited about this. I church shopped for the longest time. Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be more story, but that's why you're waving. You just were so excited about it, or are you just so excited? To... It's because I'm very guilty of it. Yeah, yeah. Church shopping can be very difficult. What happens with the process of church shopping? Right, as you walk in, you're like, okay, let's see. Um, nope, the floors are dirty. The coffee is subpar. Right, and there's like this this checklist that's matching up. Um, usually, you're kind of like, well, okay. So the worship was really, the music was good. Uh, but that guy's hair. I mean, what is he trying to do with that? And then the preacher, he just meandered about stuff that didn't really make any sense. I guess I kind of took something away from it, right? And you, so you're, you're, you're building these lists, and it's a natural thing. But that's actually what's happening in your brain and in your head and in your heart as you begin going, how, do, how is this going to work for me? How is this going to work for me? How's this going to work for me? And what can happen is the church can become so commonplace that it stops being a a holy space. It stops being a a sanctified, set-apart, different kind of thing. 
tell you what, let's do a little experiment here, and I think you'll you'll catch this. Um, uh, Laura, do you think you could pull up a, an American flag on the on the screen? You think you could do that fairly quickly? No. Okay, great. Um, sounds good. Uh, we'll see if she can do it. I think she can. I'm sure of it. I'm positive. It can happen. Just go move on? Okay. Uh, never mind. She's not going to pull it up. Here's what we're going to do. Just imagine a, a flag, American flag pops up on the screen, and we're going to say the national, or we're going to say the, uh, the, or the Pledge of Allegiance. How do we do that? How do we say the Pledge of Allegiance? Okay, so let's do it. Ready? Go ahead. Ready? Go ahead. We're not going to say the national anthem. We, we can, but but I just want you to... Okay, so here's the deal. I want you to feel this. I just want you to feel why you're doing this. Why are you doing this? Because I told you to. That's a good answer. But why do we do this in our society? Anybody? Because it's a respect. We love the, the, the country. There's a, there's a thing that's going on here. Do you do this any other time? Do you do this any other time in your life where you stand up and maybe before dinner, right? Oh, thank you for the great and wonderful meatloaf. Then you guys can sit down. No, it's fine. It's just got awkward, right? Do you do that? I mean, seriously, this is a question. Do you do that in any other space in life? Not really, okay? What you're doing is you're, you're, set, you're sanctifying, you're setting apart this particular moment by changing your body action, by changing your body. Oh, hey! Oh, it's not waving. That's it, I'm church shopping. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. Okay, thanks, Laura. All right. <laughs> yeah. So that's what you're doing, is you're changing your body posture because of a moment. It's a special moment. It's different than it's different than any other moment. It's fascinating, right? We actually have a lot of these in your in your life, in your in your um, in your day to day. You have a lot of different ceremonies, a lot of different things that you observe, a lot of different ways that you treat different things, right? Some of you guys, you have to dress up when you go to work. Why do you dress up when you go to work? So that I don't get fired. But part of it's because they're requiring you to act a little bit differently in that space than you would if you were laying around in your pajamas. What would happen if you guys showed up in pajamas to your work? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, Carrie's like nothing. They'd get greasy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I can show up to work in my pajamas sometimes because sometimes I have to work from my kitchen table, right? But uh, but yeah. So but you you wouldn't naturally do that. You have to change your body posture. You have to change the way you look or act or dress or whatever because of the situation. Here's the thing: is I think that. Because the church has become so commonplace in our society, we have begun to treat it commonly. We have begun to treat this commonly. But if we believe what the Bible has to say about what we are doing here, about what this is, this is a moment of eternal significance. When you gather with the weird person sitting next to you, go ahead, glance over at him awkwardly. When you gather with this weirdo that's sitting next to you, this is an incredibly eternal and important moment where you are gathering with the body of Christ to unify together to the head and to declare His glory among the nations. I don't know if you think about that when you walk into church. 
I sometimes don't. Uh, Will was just laughing at me because uh, I'm like one of those, I'm like a little scurrying uh, ant. I can't sit still. So I'm like walking back and forth and cleaning up coffee and uh, shaking hands with people and uh, uh, kissing hands and shaking babies or whatever way you want to say that, right? So um, that's so I'm just bouncing around all over the place. I can't stop myself from doing that when I'm in this place. And I can run the risk of treating it very common. Um, I did some research into traditions and denominations of ways that they treated the church space differently. And I started off because I knew some of the history of some of the church. I started off looking at the Quakers. Uh, When I say Quakers, what do you think of? Oatmeal. Everybody's like, oatmeal. Why? Because Quaker oatmeal, right? Nobody thinks of the fact that, did you know that the Quakers, how how they did worship, what their worship services were like, was everybody sat in a square. It was a square. There was no main focal point, just a square. And they sat in total silence. Total silence. Until somebody would start quaking. And would deliver what they felt was a word from the light within. That's the Quakers' worship style. That's why they were called Quakers, because they literally would quake. Well, then there was a group that split off of them, because apparently they didn't like silence. They were called the Shakers. A little bit different, right? And the Shakers initially started off with similar worship style, but then they realized, like, um, they, they actually, they, they were louder. They didn't like the silence part, so they would dance, and they would prance, and they would sing. And what happened is they actually ended up choreographing a dance that started off in the beginning of every ser- every service. This is in our country within the last 100 years or so, 150 years. They would choreograph a dance that would open up every ceremony. Should we do that? Yeah. Okay, well, I'll let you. I'll let one of you guys do it. But they actually have some pictures of it. You can Google it online. But I mentioned this before. The shakers would do this because they would signify that they were shaking the sin off, and that this was actually to remember that sometimes they shake in the presence of the Lord, and then they like they would walk towards each other like this. It was like West Side Story. It's awesome. <laughs> right? But they would treat the space. Very holy. They would treat the space very holy. There are other traditions in our world. Um, if you are a, if you are a Catholic, you do this thing called genuflecting. Anybody know what that is? What's a genuflect? It's where you bow on one knee when you enter the space. You make the sign of the cross depending on what side of the divide you're on. And it's a, it's a word meaning to bow one's knee before the Lord. And so there's this moment where this space becomes different. And now we're in a basement in the middle of a... There used to be milk flowing through here, you guys. Like, this is a creamery. There used to be milk flowing. There used to be vats over here. So it's not like a particularly special place. But I will tell you that this, that, that this space, because of the people that are gathered here is an incredibly different space. Now this comes, uh, this type of thing happens in the Bible all of the time. If you think about, uh, let's take a look at Moses, right? What did Moses, Moses met Jesus, Moses met God in a burning shrubbery. That's how you read that, burning shrubbery. Right? And in a burning bush. And what, when, as soon as he approached the burning shrubbery, the voice of the Lord came to him and told him to take off his shoes because he is standing on holy ground, right? And so he had to change something about his body posture in order to enter this presence where he met with God. Then Moses gets pulled off. Moses and the people of Israel get pulled off to Mount Sinai. And before God descends and is going to meet with them, they are supposed to consecrate themselves three days. 
to cease from physical relationships with their spouses, to set aside some things, to fast for three days, to not eat for three days and wait for the Lord. Because that space was about to become holy. In, uh, in the story of Joshua, if you've ever, uh, the Veggie Tales made this, made this very famous, right? Joshua is sitting out there outside of the walls of Jericho and the angel of the Lord shows up to him in shining armor with a, with a, a sword in his hand and it happens to be the British asparagus guy and, um, and, but it's not what's happening in the Bible, just so you know. It's actually the same person that shows up in the, uh, in the burning bush and he shows up, the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army and he literally says to Joshua, hey, Take off your shoes because you are standing on holy ground. uses the exact same words. But the temple, the tabernacle, you can fast forward even further. As soon as the people enter the place of the, the promised land, they have to set up a tabernacle, set up a temple. And that tabernacle and temple, you had to wash yourself, cleanse yourself. The, uh, the, the high priest would have to sprinkle blood on themselves or have to sprinkle blood on, the, uh, on the, the outer doors and all of that type of stuff. Seven times they'd have to sprinkle the outer doors and then they'd have to sprinkle themselves and then wash and change and all this type of stuff. A lot lot of pomp and circumstance into this particular area because that's a place where man was going to meet with God. Or another one, one of my favorites is Gideon. Gideon, and as soon as you meet him in the book of Judges, he's trampling grain inside of a wine press because he's hiding from the warring army that's coming, the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, O mighty man of valor, and he goes and makes a meal for the angel of the Lord and comes back and brings it to him. He actually went and prepared, and and when you read it, like this is not a small chore. I mean, he's cooking for a few hours while the angel of the Lord's like waiting around, going, "Okay," and uh, and Gideon brings it back and puts it on a rock, and and then there's some more conversation with the God of the universe, and it's a pretty beautiful thing. This week in Corinthians, Paul's going to pick this up. He's going to talk about how we treat the holy space, but the holy space is. Not, if you read your Bible, it's not this place, this space. But it's more than that. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's in your Bible, <laughs> towards the back. 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's see if I can find it here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And First uh, Corinthians is, you know, because we have to do some prep, we're reading through the book of First Corinthians, and this is a book that is very corrective. Something has gone horribly wrong in this church. It's a, it's a church that has, has uh, blossomed, has grown, it has blossomed in, uh, in a city where everything's all about me. It's a very Vegas-esque city. Everything's all about sensuality, all about um, all about the things that I get from this city. It's very big. It's very uh, very transient. I mean, the, the city is just a very hopping place, and this church rises up in the middle of it. And as it grows, it starts to grow a little wonky. And so Paul is addressing the First Corinthian church, or the church in Corinth. Excuse me, in First Corinthians, he's addressing the church in Corinth, trying to tell them what has gone wrong, what has gone horribly wrong in their church. And so he's dealing with all of these issues. And sometimes it can feel very random, but I think Nick did a fantastic job last week pulling and pulling apart all of like the one thread line that runs through the whole thing. So thank you for that, Nick. Um, but today, what I want you to see, and we're going to read 1 Corinthians 6, but I want you to see what is happening is 
the Corinthians' private sin, their private sin is becoming their public identity. Their private sin is becoming their public identity, and it's it's destroying everything. And this is something we can take away from this book over and over again. When your private sin becomes your public identity, it destroys everything in your life. It destroys everything in your life. Your secrets make you sick, or your private sin, when your private sin becomes your public identity, it destroys everything. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 6. I want to read the whole thing. It's not that long. Um, what you're going to, and, I'll, and then I'll just make some highlights as we as we walk through this. Chapter six. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. If you do this to your brothers, and you do this to your brothers, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord from the dead, excuse me, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, this is a fascinating passage. And it can be a hot-button passage in our culture. It doesn't need to be that. Let me just show you kind of what Paul's talking about here. But it does, it is incredibly applicable to this society here. So Paul, and I don't know if you know this, this actually comes from John Olson. John, you're a great theologian. just need you to know that. Yeah, so John, when we were at the Philippines uh, last year, we were reading through uh, what were we, Philippians, I think, because Philippines, Philippians, close enough, right? And uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, Vanessa, but she was there; she agreed. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> uh, so we were reading through Philippines, Philippians. Oh my goodness! I'm totally lost. Yeah, and uh, and as we were reading, we were talking about Paul, and John says, "You know, it really strikes me that Paul was a law enforcement officer." <clears throat> And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, he's a law enforcement officer. I mean, if, if when you first meet him, he's 
delivering warrants. Right? He's getting warrant requests from from the local law enforcement and I mean literal law enforcement. It's like Jewish law enforcement, and he's going to arrest the people who are breaking the law. That's when you meet Paul right off the bat as a law enforcement officer. And so when a law enforcement officer starts talking about lawsuits, you gotta pay attention. They know things a little bit differently than you and I know them. And so he starts off with all of this talk about um, about judging angels and about um, uh, about judging the world, and he says, "But yet you run to court. Like, come on, guys, get this together." And he says, "Why not? You rather be wrong, but instead you're trying to win against people." And what I think he's doing here is he's setting up the rest of this passage for talking about, like, "Hey, your perspective is so far off that what you do is when you're wronged, instead of trying to just say, hey, 'Hey, you're right. I'm just going to be wronged here. Go ahead and take my stuff.' We run to the they're they're running to the courts in order to help this in order to have this get figured out instead of actually bringing it up in the church." And so what's happening is something went horribly wrong inside of them. And so he drops into this list of all of these things that are happening. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? And then he says, do not be deceived. And then there's this list. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy. And so what's going on here is there's this huge list. And interestingly enough, the first four of them have to do with physical relationships with another person. And it's this way, okay? So the first one is, do you not know, uh, it says, neither the sexually immoral. So what it's talking about there is it's talking about people who are enslaved by lust. And the first one is a reference to men with uh, men who are women, womanizers, men with any other women. Then he moves into uh, sexually immoral, nor idolaters. And the word that's used there has to do with this, this idol worship, this temple idol worship, where there's physical relationships, where there's a sexual physical relationship happening in the presence of idols. That's what he's talking about there. And then he goes on and says, nor, uh, nor adulterers, which would be, it's actually referring to men and married women, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. And so we're talking about, what's what we're hitting on here is, he's talking about the whole gamut of using people for your physical benefit. The whole gamut of using people for your physical benefit. So it doesn't matter, I just want to say this, because there's a lot of younger people here, and uh, parents, if you have younger children here, and, and this offends you, just talk to me later, and I'll happily explain things to them with whiteboards or whatever. But here's the deal. When it comes to sexual relationships... As soon as that becomes our identity, as soon as it becomes our identity, whether it's homosexual or heterosexual, that's our identity. That's a, that's a step off in the wrong direction. Because our identity is a person who is made in the image of Jesus Christ to reflect the glory of God Almighty, not to reflect the glory of the pleasure that we have. It's just that simple thing, okay? So we don't have to be legalistic about, you know, this or that or this or that, right? Because a destructive and using using an abusive heterosexual relationship is just as absolutely horrible as a using and abusing homosexual relationship. It doesn't matter the type that's being had. It matters on the reflection that is given, okay? just want to get that out of the way because I've got to say that. 
But here's what's going on. is Something has gone horribly wrong. These are all private sin issues that are not working their way out publicly. I don't know if you noticed this, but the rest of the like thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, all these people, swindlers are the ones who, out of the lust of their hearts, are manipulating people for their own good. This is what's going on is there's this lust that's happening inside of people for stuff and for people and for pleasure and all of that and for power. And they're using and abusing and manipulating people in order to get it. That's what Paul is really going off the handle about. Then he starts quoting their first letter. Now remember I told you I'd mention a few times when this happens. Um, this is 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter written to the church of Corinth between Paul and Corinth. They wrote a letter to him, he wrote one back, so on and so forth. And he quotes here, everything is permissible for me. That's what their letter had said. At least that's what most theologians think. He also quotes in here, food for the stomach, stomach for the food. These are quotations that are coming, at least we think, from their first letter that was written to them. And so here's part of the correspondence and why Paul is addressing them. But what he's doing is he's talking about, hey, here's the deal. Your private sin doesn't just stay private. As soon as it works its way out public, and it will, as soon as it becomes your identity, it will start to destroy relationships around you. It will start to destroy relationships around you. And that is not a command to keep your sin secret or an encouragement to keep it secret. It's an encouragement to get it out. Get it out in the open. Talk about it. Talk about the struggles you have with one another and walk in light of the grace of Jesus Christ. But one of the things that Paul starts talking about here now in, in verse 11, he turns his, turns his mind and his eyes to something that's an incredible reality. And I love the way this passage handles this. It gives us two things. In verse 11, it's going to give us the reality of who we are. And then in verses 19 through 20, it's going to give us the responsibility of that reality. And so we're going to focus on those two things for just a little bit. In verse 11 it says, and this is what some of you were, but here's the deal. You were, and then it says three things, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now those three terms are very specific terminology. The first one, you were washed. This is a, this is a throwback, this is the idea that's being packed here, is that if you're, if you're reading through, anybody reading through the Bible plan this year, doing the Bible project thing, who here was in Numbers this week? Who here stayed awake during Numbers this week? Okay, good. Um, yeah, in, in uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you get this entire blast over and over again of this is how you should do things in the temple. And there's all these sacrifices and all these ceremonies and all this weird stuff going on. And this is what Paul is drawing on. You have been washed, you have been cleansed, you have been cleaned. Everything that had to be used in the temple had to be cleaned ceremonially. It had to be washed ceremonially, it had to be dunked into a tub, into a basin of water that sat in front of the, in the front part of the temple. And as it was ceremonially cleaned, then it was, then and only then was it considered a tool that could even possibly stay inside the temple. Okay? Now this is what Paul is saying is, you have been washed. You have been washed. Jesus Christ, in His great sacrifice, in His power, cleansed you once and for all, and you are now able to be in the holy place, in the holy presence, in the holy place of God. That's a beautiful thing. But He doesn't stop there, because then He says, you have also been sanctified. And the word He's using there in Greek carries this Jewish idea that you have been set apart. You have been specifically given a specific 
a specific job. You are a tool that has been given a job in the temple structure, in the, the tabernacle structure. And so when he says this, as you've been ceremonially given a purpose, not only were you cleansed, saying, okay, now you're a special thing that is sent to the Lord, that is, that is able to be here, now you've been sanctified. We've set you apart for a purpose. We've put you up. You're ready to declare the glory of God because of the purpose that you've been given. And then he turns this into something else, and he says, not only that, but furthermore, you have been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And justified, now this is a legal terminology. This is Paul like, you know, uh, confusing some of his his ideas, and that's what good missionaries do. And this is a legal idea. The justified idea is that you are made as Ray says this all the time to me, so it's stuck in my head, just as if it had never happened. You had been guilty and it has been made just as if it has never happened, justified, good memory thing. But the real, the real deal here, the legal terminology is, you are put back into a right relationship with the authorities. It's like the idea of a pardon, or the idea of uh, having your record completely cleaned or sponged or whatever. We've had to deal with that with a few people here and help them walk through that process. But that's the idea is, like, hey, we're going from guilty to... We're going to treat you as though this has never, ever even happened, and now you are able to be rightly restored. Okay, That's what justified is. So if you got this in your mind, it's, it's as though you went from a dirty instrument to a clean instrument, but then you went from an instrument that's not even clean, but given a purpose, and then not only have you been given a purpose, but now you've been given a right standing ready to be used. Ready to be used. That's what Paul is talking about. You went from outside to inside, from inside to function, and from function to action. That is what has happened because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's the reality. And he says this to the Corinthian church, who are obviously not really like, you know, perfect or anything like that. They're not a perfect church. So what a great hope for us, right? Like we get to set it, we get to look at this and go, here's the reality of how Jesus sees me. You, you have been washed. You have been set apart and you have been given a function and you're now ready for use. You're now ready for use. Then he drops into this whole thing going, okay, but here's how you're using yourself. <laughs> you're using yourself improperly. And then he talks about all this temple worship stuff, about uniting the body of Christ to temple prostitutes and so on and so forth. He says, right in the same breath, you have become the best tool for the job to declare the glory of God, yet what you're going to do is you're going to take that tool out of the temple and go unite it to something else in another temple? How can that even be? And he's getting at this idea of you're not treating... You're not treating the ground as holy. He boils all this down into the final few verses here in 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, the youth pastor in me, former youth pastor in me, is really tempted to use this as a guilt passage to make sure that you live a life of purity. Because this is how this is used in youth ministry 101. It's like, hey, don't you know that your body's the temple of the Spirit? You best not touch people ever. Right? And so it's this, uh, it's, sex is dirty and gross. Save it for the one you love. Right? So that's, uh, that's the idea that's, that's going on here. No, it's not the idea that's going on here. 
What Paul's talking about, and this is a typical Paulism, is he says, hey, y'all, I mean, it's not exactly y'all, but it's a plural pronoun, you, y'all, are the singular body of the Holy Spirit. Y'all are the body. All of you are one body. That's what's going on. This is going to get really important in later passages. But y'all are the body of the Holy Spirit. And your body, y'all's body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells here. Here. As you meet together. This is what we were talking about early on. As you meet together This space is holy because the Holy Spirit dwells amongst y'all. Amongst y'all. And so when we take our private sin, we make that our public identity, and then we link it to y'all. That is what Paul's talking about. See, here's the deal. The, The fallacy of our generation, the fallacy of our world, is that you have an individual relationship with Jesus Christ. Your individual sin will really just individually hurt you. So individually take care of it on your own individual manner. That could not be further from the understanding that Paul has in the Scripture. You have a public relationship with Jesus Christ that unites you to other people who have a public relationship with Jesus Christ. And the sin that you struggle with harms the people in this building. And the sin they struggle with harms you. And so what are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to carry it together. And work at it together. And help each other through this whole thing. And drag each other to the cross, to Jesus Christ. And so Paul focuses on this when he says, y'all, you are a body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Y'all are one body. You were set apart and put into service as the temple, the holy ground of God. Then he says even further that you are not your own. You are not your own. No longer do you have a claim to this life that that you hold. Now, instead of it being about me, it is about we, and it's not just about we, but it's about us and Jesus too. So we have a relationship where now our life is dictated and mandated by the one who bought us, the one who purchased us, by Jesus Christ who says, tells us things that we should be doing, like the missions video you saw earlier. Go. All authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is a mandate for us. We have been given that job. And He's been given to you, and to you, and to you, and to you, and to you. you. But we all carry that together. We all carry that together. Paul reminds us that you are not your own. It is our job to trust Jesus in the choices He makes for the church and for our individual lives. To trust Jesus that He will supply all we have and all we need. To trust Jesus as He directs our steps and our paths. You can make plans. You can make five-year plans, ten-year plans. But the first thing to die in every battle is the plan. He directs our steps and our paths. He gives us the people and resources we need to accomplish the mission laid out in front of us. It is our job simply to respond in faith. And then he says, therefore, glorify God in your body. This is why the, so I want to prep all this, is the youth pastor who says, therefore you should make sure that you don't touch other humans. It's not, we, glorify God in your body, your public connection to Jesus Christ. This is how we work together. 
to make sure that whatever we are doing, we are glorifying God together. How do you glorify God? Well, we stop making the church about us. That's the first step. First step. How do you glorify God? Stop making the church about you. This goes from the top to the bottom. This place is not here to make us or me or you a better version of ourselves. It's not what church is for. It's not to empower you. Church is not here to empower you. The church is not here to make you a more efficient American human. That's not what the church's job is. The play, this place is here. These people are here to help you do what you were created to do, and that is to walk in faith and to glorify God with everything that you've got collectively. So what it all boils down to is this. If Christ is in you, you are holy ground. You are holy ground. If you go rewind it all the way back to the beginning of this uh, this message, uh, we were talking about Moses, right? Take your sandals off, take your shoes off, because the place you stand is holy ground. Treat it differently, treat it special. Make sure that you're not bringing crud from the outside inside as though it's normal. Leave that out, right? This is the idea that's going on here. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If Christ is in you, you are holy ground. Holy ground. Act like it. We need to act like it together. See, holiness is something that um, has become uh, passe, and for people that, uh, for people of a different generation that grew up in what used to be called the holiness movement, when you talked about holiness, because we veered away from what we think is legalism. And I'm not talking about legalism here. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about, hey, when you get together with your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, do you understand how incredibly and eternally important this moment is? Do you understand that? This is the best way to do this, and it's just goofy. I want you to look at the person next to you and say, You are special. You feel it? Do you feel it? Do you feel it? You guys didn't say it with conviction. Okay, so I want you to turn to the person again and declare it. You are special. Wow, yeah, see, now you feel that? Whatever. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) stop it. Okay, fine. I know it's goofy, but here's the deal, and I just want you to pay attention to this. Seriously, if Jesus Christ has purchased you with the blood, with His own blood, if God sent His Son for you and He shed His blood for you, do you not know how incredibly and unbelievably special you are? Do you not know that? And when you gather with one another, the person next to you is special. And what I mean by special is not the way that you probably meant it when you said it to the person. (laughs) What I mean by special is the Holy Spirit of God dwells in them. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. Live like it if you are in Christ. If you are not, a whole other conversation needs to be had. I would be happy to have that conversation with you. You are on holy ground in this place. Not because... You know, not because this stuff's so holy. This will change. This stuff will change. This is not a holy place, but this is a holy space. Okay? Live like it. Let us act like it.
I don't know how you're going to apply that. It's not my job. My job is to tell you, treat this place, treat these people like a holy space. Let's pray. And let's glorify God. Jesus, we come before you. And uh, I ask for my own life, Lord. It is so easy to slide into complacency doing the safe thing. Doing the thing that I know will bring me pleasure or will work or whatever. It is so easy for me to slide into a place where it's safe. Where I'm not admitting who I really am. Where I'm not admitting the motivations I really have. Where I'm not admitting the things that are really going on in life. It is so easy to just slide into that and say, well, this is my battle. But Lord, if your word has anything to say about it, it is not just my battle. It is our battle. And my private junk affects these guys. And their private junk affects me. And I care about them and they care about me. So let us figure out how to do this together. Lord, help us to stop making church about us. But to remember it's about all of us. And help us to live like this is holy, a holy space. This is holy ground. Thank you for my friends. I pray that you'll move us from here to glorify you with everything that we've got. And that we would do whatever it takes to, to bind together in relationship because we know that glorifies you. To serve and to work for the good of this community because we know that that glorifies you. To take our access to the gospel seriously and to live it out in this place until the day when you call us either home or to live it out in a different place. Lord, help that to be the case. We need your spirit to do that. And as we glorify you and worship you in song, I pray that you will move our hearts in your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.